If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 17. We are slowly working our way through the book of Acts. I think this might be number 50. Um, We're working our way through, and today we're going to begin in verse 22. That's where we're picking up. And I want to begin by asking you to imagine a circumstance where you're called to stand up and speak before the experts. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations. Uh, Maybe there was a board certification or maybe an oral examination. There are different times when we have to do this. And just to uh, be a bit hyperbolic, I I thought of a few extreme examples. I... uh, I'm friends with Zeb Taylor. You may have seen him on the billboard by Cafe Mike's. He does financial planning. And uh, I texted him and I said, hey, what, what, would it, what would it feel like if you got an invitation to travel to New York and stand before the heads of Goldman Sachs and give your approach to financial planning and retirement? And uh, he said, well, I, I don't think I'd have the words. Um, but we, we can think of other examples. I, I thought of the uh, Corinth football coach, Coach Dye. Uh, imagine if he was invited to come to Alabama and lecture the Alabama coaching staff, which includes Nick Saban. Or think about uh, Dr. Childress, our superintendent. Imagine if he was invited to, to go to Cambridge, not bringing the Cambridge uh, curriculum here, but imagine if he went to Cambridge and lectured on education in the halls of an educational institution that was founded in 1209. Right? All, all, all of those are just some examples I thought of of having to go and stand before the experts. And all of them, no doubt, would be quite intimidating. Well, we have an example of this today. The Apostle Paul in Athens standing in the Areopagus. Now, you could poke holes in some of my comparisons that I've just made like between Zeb Taylor and the Apostle Paul. That's not the point. The point is, I don't think Paul was immune to this feeling where A city like Athens has the ability to cow someone. I think even the Apostle Paul could have been awed into submission by this monumental city. I'll I'll, I'll remind you, Athens was the intellectual center of the world. The birthplace of Western civilization. The birthplace of the classical era. A city that boasted names like Socrates... Plato and Aristotle. And Paul isn't visiting Athens and seeing ruins. You know, you and I can visit today and we can, we can walk that same road and see the ruins of the Parthenon. Paul was not seeing ruins. Paul was seeing Athens still in her golden age. One scholar I read said that 
Athens may have been in the late afternoon of her golden age, but she was still in her golden age when Paul arrived. And yet, despite all her power and importance, her historical weight and beauty and architecture, Paul isn't cowed into saying, who am I? Who am I to question these great minds and to, collect, to question the collective wisdom of this city? He doesn't do that. He speaks, and he speaks as a Christian. James Montgomery Boyce gives an el- a helpful application here. He says, We need Christians today who have a proper respect for the achievements of our time who do not despise what has been done in science and other intellectual pursuits, but who are not too awed by these achievements and are able to see the limits of our culture and then respond helpfully with the word of God. That's what the church needs. Christians like Paul, Christians who appreciate the arts and the sciences and the achievements of our culture. In this passage, we're going to see Paul quote two Greek poets from memory to make his case. Christians should not be thought of as anti-intellectual, anti-art, anti-culture. But we should not be so awed by the achievements of our culture that we're unable to see the limitations of our culture. And in seeing those limitations, we're able to respond with the word of God, and that's what Paul does. I would be shocked if the Apostle Paul wasn't nerding out just a little bit to be in the city of the philosophers. I'd be shocked if he wasn't a bit... Giddy, standing in the same place where Socrates stood 400 years before. And yet, he is able to see a glaring limitation of the Athenians. This city, which is known for wisdom, is ignorant concerning the living God. Paul sees this and he responds helpfully with God's Word. That's what we're going to see today. But before we do, let's go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak through your preached word. And Father, we do seek you, remembering that you are near. And so we seek you now and we pray that you would speak to your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they may seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So Paul is struck with the limitations of the Athenian culture. And he begins by saying, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. Well, what gave that away, Paul? Was it the three idols for every resident? If if you weren't with us last week, it was said that in Athens it was easier to meet a god or goddess than it was to meet a person. They had about 10,000 residents in the city and about 30,000 idols. Paul says, as I passed along, as I'm going through these idols, I observed. He says, I observed the objects of your worship. Now, notice, Paul does not say, I observed your gods or goddesses. He says, I observed the objects of your worship because that's what they are. And he continues and says, there was one in particular that stood out to me. There's one particular altar and on it were written these words, to the unknown God. Now, why did the Athenians have an altar dedicated to an unknown God? Maybe they were just hedging their bets. Like, all right, if we happen to miss one, this altar can just serve as a catch-all so that we've got all our bases covered. Maybe that was it in a shallow sense. But I think in a deeper sense, there was an inability for them to shake their innate knowledge of the Most High. I read something interesting that R.C. Sproul wrote on this. Uh, he, he, he's answering the question of why would they build an altar to an unknown God. And he, he says this, 
He says, modern sociology and anthropology have found that man is incurably religious. No matter where we go, we find people practicing religion, most of which is animistic and idolatrous. We'll just stop right there. This is true. No matter where you go, you can go to the Amazon. You can go to Papua New Guinea. You can visit the aboriginals in the center of Australia. You can uh, go and visit the Inuit people in the Arctic Circle. No matter where you go, you will find religious people. Now, most of the time, you'll, there's either worship of ancestors or worship of nature, the sun, moon, stars, or different animals. But you'll find this. Sproul continues. Yet when scholars go into these primitive places and begin to probe, people will begin to talk about the big God who lives on the other side of the mountain. And Sproul concludes saying, they cannot erase from their consciousness the knowledge of the Most High. They were aware of the big God on the other side of the mountain. Maybe that's that, that deeper conscious knowledge that they're unable to escape. And listen, we, we Americans are not any different because we're human beings. I, I found a Pew Research survey in, from 2017, and it stated that 90% of Americans reported belief in some kind of higher power. Right? Nine out of ten. Um, now, a, a slight majority reported belief in, in the God of the Bible. The rest of that 90% was just some type of higher power, spiritual force, just a, a different view. But 90% reported a belief in a higher power. And I would argue with the Apostle Paul from Romans 1 that the remaining 10% is just being stubborn and suppressing what they know to be true. They don't like the God who is there, and so they act like he doesn't exist. We cannot, as human beings, erase our knowledge of the Most High God. And this is what they've done in Athens. They've made this altar to the unknown God. They are ignorant concerning the true identity. They, they, they know something is there, but they don't know who it is. And so Paul responds. He's going to introduce them. And the first thing he says about the Most High God is that He is the Creator of all things. We see this in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So right knowledge of God begins with understanding that he is the creator. It begins with understanding that everything that has been and everything that is and everything that will be has been made by him and made for a purpose. We will go, uh, as, well, we human beings will build theaters and auditoriums, and symphony halls where we can go and observe plays or musicals, operas, 
the Lord God spoke the universe into existence. He, he created a space so that there might be a stage upon which he might display the plan of redemption. Calvin calls the universe the theater of his glory. That's why he created it. That's why he created everything. And if he has created everything, then what does that mean for us? It means that we are his creatures. We are the work of his hands. And he says this in verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Now, what did Paul just affirm in that verse? The historicity of Adam and Eve. Right? There was one man and one woman, and from them came the human race. Paul here is exposing the folly of racism as well as evolutionary theory. They're both equally as foolish. Racism is foolish due to the fact that every person shares a common ancestry. There's one race. Different ethnic groups, different levels of melanin in our skin. But there is one man and one woman from which we all come. Which means it is foolish to believe that another race is inferior to yours. We all have the same blood and come from the same mother and father. Evolutionary theory is equally as foolish because it teaches that our first ancestors were not a father and mother, but rather primates. And, I mean, just the theory of evolution in general uh, proposes that all of this happened some 65 million years ago. And, of course, this is something that you cannot watch. Uh, The scientific method requires observation, which is not something you can do over a span of 65 million years. Richard Dawkins says this. He says, we are condemned to live only for a few decades. And that's too slow, too small a timescale to see evolution going on. Charles Darwin, the man himself, said, we see nothing of these slow changes in progress until the hand of time has lapsed, uh, marked the lapse of the ages. You would need millions of years to have confirmation that Darwinian evolution is true. But we're told to simply trust the experts. Do you know what that's called? That, my friends, is blind faith. It's blind faith. Paul says, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The Most High God made the heavens and the earth and one man from which every nation of mankind came. All right. I stepped on college football last week. I'm going, I might be stepping on another sacred cow. So, but listen, it's, it, this is true. I survived college football. Maybe I'll survive schools. You have to teach your children this. Because even in Northeast Mississippi, 
They are not going to get this in their schools. What are your children being taught? Most likely it's that their life is the result of a cosmic accident. That human life emerged through the chance collision of atoms. And it is moving relentlessly towards the abyss of nothingness. Uh, they're, they're being taught that human existence, both in the beginning and the end, comes from and is going to meaninglessness. This is the ignorance that Paul is exposing in, in Athens. And he says that God is not only creator, but he is the sustainer. And ordainer of all things. You can see halfway through verse 25. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives you life and breath and everything you have. Not only are we created by an intelligent, eternal being, but we are sustained by him as long as we live. We do not provide for him. He provides for us. The reason we are alive right now, the reason my heart is beating is because of his sustaining power. Do we live like we believe this? I think too often we probably live as though we're in the backseat of a car flying down the highway with no driver behind the wheel. And we see a turn in the road coming up. And we've got to do what we can to stay on the road. And so we're terrified, constantly reacting, anxious. What's going to happen? And Paul is teaching, your life isn't in the back seat of a driverless car. You are held in the hands of your creator, and he is sustaining you every moment. How might it change us if that truth really sinks into our heart? Not only is he sustainer, he's also ordainer. In the second half of verse 26, we read, he made from one man every nation of mankind. And then he continues, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This God is not only creator and sustainer, but he has determined the number of your days and the boundaries of your dwelling. He's determined when you would be born, where you would be born, where you would live. When you would die. And he will sustain you perfectly until that appointed day is reached. And he brings you home to be with himself. If this is who God is, then what is required of us? Well, the first thing we see in verse 27, Paul says, They should seek God and perhaps... Feel their way toward him and find him. Do you remember Homer's story, the Odyssey? At one point, Odysseus and his companions are in a dire 
circumstance. They are trapped in a cave by this giant one-eyed monster, this Cyclops. And the monster eats a few of Odysseus's companions, and so they have to think of a way they're going to escape. And so their plan is to get the Cyclops drunk, and then when he's in his inebriated stupor, they get a wooden stake and they stab the Cyclops in his single eye so that he can't see. And this monster is blindly groping around the cave, feeling for the men. You remember how they escape. The Cyclops had sheep. And uh, he would keep them safely in the cave, but then he would let them out to graze in, in the grass. And he would, as they passed between his legs, he would feel the sheep and he would feel their wool as they passed. And so Odysseus and his men had to cling to the bottom of these sheep because there was a cyclops blindly groping around the cave trying to find them. That's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses here. They should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. And then how comforting is this? We we, we aren't like a cyclops stumbling around a cave looking for someone who's not there. Paul says he is actually not far from each of us. So it's true that our sin has made us blind. Our sin has brought us to a state of spiritual blindness. And yes, we're commanded to seek him and feel for him in the darkness, but he's not light years away. He's not giving his attention to a more pressing situation on another continent. Paul says he is not far from you. If we seek him, he may be found. The Lord Jesus says says this. He gives those famous words. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. This is the first response Paul provides the people. Then he wants to find some common ground. And so he's going to mention two different lines of Greek poetry. You remember Paul's normal practice. He would go into a new city, go into the synagogue, open the scriptures, and reason with the Jews as to uh, why Jesus was the Christ. Well, he doesn't do that here. <laughs> because if he tried that with the Athenians, I mean, he, he wouldn't have gotten anywhere. And so he goes to a place of common ground. He quotes some poets that every one of them would have known. And, and he's recognizing that in these lines, there are gems of truth embedded. And he's going to use those. The first one, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, the original author was not intending that for the same God that Paul is speaking of. But surely we could claim those words as true of our maker. The second one, for we are indeed his offspring. 
This is a poem about Zeus. But doesn't Scripture agree? The Lord Jesus spoke of the first person of the Trinity as Father. He teaches his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven. Paul has found these divine truths in this poetry. And you know, it's, it's the same with those two groups we talked about last week, with the Epicureans and the, and the Stoics. I talked to some of you afterwards, and they're in both of those philosophies. There are some divine truths that could be used as a starting place of common ground. And we remember that it's the same in our culture today. Those divine truths embedded. And we are to approach our culture as Christians and see it as Christians. And that's what Paul does. He finds common ground. And then he gives another command. Not only are we to seek him, but he tells them to repent. We see this in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That first statement, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. He's saying the creator who upholds your very life, he has been patient and overlooked your ignorance. Now, I I don't believe Paul is saying he is excusing your sin. I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. We'll just let bygones be bygones. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I believe what he is saying is God has been merciful. God has been patient. He has sustained you and upheld you to this point. Some of you know this personally. When you think of believers who come to faith later in life. Who, you've got some believers who will say, well, I never knew a day apart from the Lord. And we love those. Praise God for those stories. That's what I want for my two little girls, that they would say, I never knew a day apart from the Lord. But, but there are others of us who come to faith later in life. And you may think, man, if he had called my number during that period of life, it's frightening to think about. But he overlooked those times. Those chapters of foolishness and rebellion. He's overlooked them. And now I have a true, real appreciation of the words, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We can say, He has been that for me. And God's patience can lead us to repentance. He's overlooked those times of ignorance, but now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent. To repent of what? Of of worshiping and serving 
created things rather than the creator. Uh, By thinking that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. That he's some image formed by the art and imagination of man. We, We need to repent of being unwilling to recognize the true God and instead just fabricating something that reflects ourselves that we hope will fill the emptiness in our hearts. And there's a call to repent that there is mercy. And we are to turn and walk in obedience. Why? Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. I'm sure that this is not everything that the Apostle Paul said about the Lord Jesus. Luke is giving us the summary bullet points of this address. I would guess he talked about him in length, but this is what Luke gives us. Paul wraps it up. By saying the Most High God has fixed a day where the world will be judged in righteousness by the one whom he has appointed. Now, I know that this idea of judgment or a judgment day is one that may make the modern person chafe. This idea that we'll have to stand and give an account of our thoughts and words and deeds. This this teaching of God's glorious mercy of the eternal salvation of his people and his justice in damning the wicked and disobedient. That is something that chafes against us. You know what made the Athenians chafe? The idea of resurrection. They were with Paul until he starts talking about a man being raised from the dead. Some 500 years earlier, uh, there was a man by the name of Aeschylus. He was a playwright, and I think he was considered the father of tragedy. He had this uh, famous quote that had kind of just seeped into their culture and just become doctrine. He said... When the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. That was the accepted belief of the day. There is no resurrection. It's why Paul, when speaking about the Greeks in 1 Corinthians, he says, I I preach Christ to the Gentiles, but it's, it's folly to them. Why is it folly? Because after a man's blood is spilled in the dust, there is no resurrection. That's what they believed. Think about our own context. People will stay with us up to a certain point. We We can talk about God. We can talk about Jesus Christ. And they will nod their heads in agreement up to a certain point. And then you cross a line where they've had enough and they're done. Maybe one of the accepted cultural norms of the day has been violated. And so you've gone too far. They aren't interested in talking anymore. I would encourage you. So I would encourage 
people who might be on both sides of this. Paul didn't avoid the topic of the resurrection in Athens. Surely he knew this. And if he didn't avoid saying the Lord Jesus rose from the grave in Athens, we can't avoid the culturally offensive, seemingly foolish topics of our day. I mean, what I've already said about us all having a common mother and father, that is, that is seen as foolish in our context. But we can't do anything else because we're bound to the word of God. We are in submission to the scriptures. We are simply servants and messengers and children of the Most High God, and we cannot change the message. We're to helpfully share and stand on the Word of God. I want to end with a quote from one of my favorites from church history. A man who is standing before another court... And before him sat Emperor Charles V. This took place in Germany. A man by the name of Martin Luther said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures and by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot And I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that there are truths and aspects of the gospel of grace that are just as offensive to our culture as the doctrine of resurrection would have been to the Athenians. And yet we are not those at liberty to play the role of editor, to cut and paste. Father, we have to speak. We have to speak the truth. Father, would you help us to speak your word in a way that is true with integrity, but Father, to do so in a way that is winsome and a way that is loving and caring for the people that are before us. Father, it is my hope that we would seek you, knowing that you are near. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen.